Please turn in your Bible with me to the book of Matthew together. If you do not have a Bible, that's okay. We've got Bibles in the little chair racks that are up under the chairs. If you'll turn in that Bible to page 955, 955, you'll find the passage that we're going to read together today. It's Matthew chapter 1. I'd like to read part of our text, verses 1 through 17, not the whole thing. Um, let me introduce what we're about to do. Uh, this is the time in our service where we pull out the Bible and we read it. If you do not have a Bible of your own, we have Bibles out by the welcome desk. Just stop by the welcome desk and ask to get one and we'll give you a Bible. Uh, we believe it's God's word. We want to hear from him. And so we open the Bible and we study it together. And um, today I'm beginning a new series. We're going to look together beginning today at a series that I've called God Came Near. And um, here's the thought process behind this. For the next several weeks leading up to Christmas, I want us to see what Christmas says to our struggles. You know, we know the Christmas story, most of us, if not all of us. We know what the basic facts are, but do we apply the Christmas story to the problems that we face each day, to our fears, our worries, our concerns? Um, That's what I want us to do, and so we're going to begin today talking about regret. Regret. It's one of the most debilitating of human emotions. What is regret? Regret is that feeling that you have when you look back in your past and you say, if only. Or, I wish. You look back in your past and you say something like, if only I'd finished college. If only I'd had different parents. I'd be a lot better off today. If only I'd taken that job offer. Or if only I had not taken that job offer. Or I wish I'd never gotten us into so much debt. Why did we buy that house? Now it's only worth half of what it should. I once uh, had a married couple come see me in my office one day. and Nobody here, don't worry. But um, they did some marriage counseling with me. And I, at one point in the counseling hour that we had together, the wife looked over at her husband and she said with, in that moment of pure honesty, I wish we'd never gotten married. Regret is like that huge ball and chain that a lot of us get shackled to and we drag it around in our lifetime, attached to our ankles. Regret slows you down. It defeats you. It causes you to miss God's blessings in the present as well as his promises for the future. What's your if only this morning? What is yours? Your if only. What is your I wish? Everybody's got one. Some of us have many. Some of us live with regret. And Christmas has something to say to you about regret. I want to speak to this subject this morning to those of you who are plagued by feelings of guilt and shame and remorse about your past. And I've chosen a very unlikely passage to do this. When you look at Matthew chapter 1, you see a list of names. That's what we're going to 
look at together. Matthew 1, 1 through 17. I'm not going to read it all. It's a genealogy, and I'll try to touch upon highlights of it as we go through. But look at chapter 1, verse 1 of Matthew. It says, A record of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Who was Abraham? Abraham was the father of Isaac. Isaac, the father of Jacob, Jacob, the father of Judah and his brothers, Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar, and so on and so forth. I'm going to skip all the way down to verse 16, where it says that Jacob was the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom was born Jesus, who is called Christ. Thus, there were 14 generations in all from Abraham to David. 14 from David to the exile to Babylon and 14 from the exile to the Christ. And yes, believe it or not, that genealogy is going to talk to us about regret. How to live without regret. Three things I'd like us to see this morning. First is that perfection is unattainable. Second, that God is sovereign. And third, that grace is amazing. So let's start with the first thing there, that perfection is at least on this side of heaven, is unattainable. If there's one thing that the genealogy of Jesus proves, it is that. (laughs) It is that very fact that human beings are terribly, terribly broken. This list of people here proves that God's people can and do commit some of the most ungodly things. Let me show you what I mean. Let's start with Abraham in verse 2. Many of you know these stories, but if you're not, let me kind of do a quick review. Abraham was promised a son when he was 85 years old and his wife Sarah was about 75. But he sinfully tried to help God out by hooking up with Hagar, his wife's maidservant, and together they had this little boy called Ishmael. And then later we find out in Genesis 20 that Abraham was a compulsive liar. He lied to this king named Abimelech, who was the king of Gerar, about his wife, Sarah. He told Abimelech that she was his sister in order to save his own skin. And he was humiliated when he was found out. Jacob is listed there in verse 2. Jacob is one of Isaac and Rebekah's twins, the other being Esau. In Genesis 27, you find out that this Jacob deceived his father, Isaac. He stole the birthright that belonged to his brother Esau, who was the firstborn son. And he lived true to his name, which meant one who deceives. Judah is listed in verse 3. He was one of Jacob's 12 sons. In Genesis 38, you read that after Judah's wife died, he was walking along the road one day and he saw a woman that he thought was a prostitute. You know what he did? He propositioned her. Not knowing that it was really his daughter-in-law, Tamar. So he had an incestuous relationship with his daughter-in-law from which came the twins mentioned in verse 3, Perez and Zerah. Skip on down to David, verse 6. A lot of you know this story. David being the king of Israel, a man of, of great faith and great renown. But in 2 Samuel 11, we find out that he had a one-night stand with Bathsheba. She got pregnant. He tried all sorts of measures to cover his backside from deceiving her husband Uriah to getting him drunk to finally arranging for his death. David was a murderer. And after that, he committed several strategic blunders as king of Israel. He was overindulgent with at least one of his sons. 
He sinned against God near the end of his life, 2 Samuel 24, by counting the fighting men of Israel. And for that sin, 70,000 Israelites died. David was responsible for that. And then he had a son named Solomon. Solomon's mentioned in verse 6. Of course, we acclaim Solomon for his great wisdom, but he had a sexual addiction. He had 700 wives and 300 concubines. 1 Kings 11 says that his heart turned away from God after other gods. He had a son named Rehoboam. He's mentioned in verse 7. Rehoboam rejected the advice of his wiser elder advisors and he led Israel into idolatry. And you know what? Rehoboam was basically responsible for the splitting of the kingdom of Israel into two, Israel and Judah. That was Rehoboam's fault. And then are listed in verses 6 and through 11, 15 different kings of Judah. Seven out of the 15 were demonstrably wicked. Rehoboam, Abijah, Jehoram, Ahaz, Manasseh, Ammon, and Jeconiah. I'll have more to say about him later. A couple of Those wicked kings were also guilty of child sacrifice. Of Manasseh, who is mentioned in verse 10, it is said in 2 Kings 11, or 21 rather, that he shed so much innocent blood that he filled Jerusalem from end to end. Of the eight good kings that are listed in those verses, all of them had at least one major character flaw or committed some other kind of sin or blunder that negatively impacted their kingdom for years to come. For example, Hezekiah. Hezekiah is mentioned in verse 10. One day he gave envoys from uh, Babylon, who was an enemy nation for Judah. He gave these envoys a guided tour of his palace and of the uh, temple treasury, which was a key mistake that led to the destruction of the city by Babylonian armies in 586 B.C. Well, besides Jesus' mother Mary who is mentioned there in verse 16, four women are also included in this genealogy of Jesus, Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, and Bathsheba. Now, I'm just the messenger, okay, ladies? It was not customary for women to be listed in genealogical records. That's just the way things were back in that day because descent was normally traced through men being the heads of families. But... Isn't it interesting that the author Matthew here does do the unusual? He includes the women in the genealogy of Jesus. But besides that, there's something irregular or even scandalous about all of the women listed. Uh, All four were probably non-Jews. Rahab had been a prostitute in her former life. Tamar was at least promiscuous, if not a prostitute herself. Bathsheba, as I've said, committed adultery against her husband Uriah with King David. I mean, do you get the feeling here that Jesus' family tree is filled with broken, sinful people? It is. And then there are others in this list who were simply wounded by life. Abraham spent his adult life homeless. Judah grew up with an inferiority complex because his brother Joseph was the favored son. Perez was fatherless. Ruth, in verse 5, she was a widow. Most of the kings listed in verses 6 through 11 grew up in dysfunctional homes. And, of course, you know about Mary. 
Mary was a frightened, pregnant teenager whose heart would be pierced through with sorrow for her son. Look, if you had written the book of Matthew, would you have started it off this way? I mean, this is like a downer note in chapter 1. I wouldn't have. I would have kept these stories out of the public eye because it's so counterintuitive that the Savior of the world should have such broken people as his ancestors. So what are we getting from this genealogy? It proves that sin pervades the human race because, friends, these are the heroes of the faith. These are the people that parents tell their kids bedtime stories about. But look at how imperfect, and there's not a perfect person among them. Which, by the way, if I could insert a little sidebar, I think that is a key evidence of the Bible's inspiration. Because what human author would have come up with this genealogy? What human person would have deliberately filled the list of Jesus' ancestors with these kinds of broken and wounded souls? Certainly not a Jew would have done this. The Jews were expecting a mighty, glorious Messiah you know, who would defeat the Romans and so on. Not a man with such a checkered lineage. A genealogy with so many people of questionable character was not the type of thing that a Jew would do. Well, Cicero was right when he said, man is a disaster. Romans 3.23 says virtually the same thing. All, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. You and I are in desperate need of a Savior. And ironically, it is when you admit that, it is when you get in touch with the depth of your brokenness and the depth of your sin that you're on the road to healing. It does no good to deny the truth about who we are as human beings. We're fallen. We're sons and da- of, of uh, Adam and daughters of Eve. And it's when you really understand that that you understand how much you need Jesus Christ and the wonder of what he did for you. Well, first of all, then we see that perfection, at least this side of heaven, is unattainable. The second thing this genealogy teaches us is that God is sovereign. What a wonderful way Matthew has here of teaching the sovereignty and the providence of God. Because in many ways that are mysterious and beyond our comprehension, this genealogy proves... That God redeems our failures. He uses our wounds, our sins, and our mistakes to accomplish His perfect will. He's always at work, even when we fail. And here we're beginning to get to gospel. God is always at work, even when we fail. For example, again, going back to this family tree, God was at work when Jacob, right there in verse 2, was lying to his father about uh, pretending to be Isaac and stealing, I mean, uh, pretending to be Esau and stealing Esau's birthright. God was at work. God was at work when Jacob fled to his uncle Laban's house and fell in love with Laban's daughter, Rachel. Now, if you don't know this story, this this is an amazing proof of God's sovereignty because Laban tricked Jacob into union with his other daughter, Leah the older daughter of the two, Rachel and Leah. And from Jacob's union with Leah came Judah, the ancestor of Jesus. Now, Judah was not the firstborn son of Jacob. Reuben was. 
And Judah was not the favorite son of Jacob. Joseph was. But Judah is the one listed in the lineage. He was the ancestor of Jesus. God was even at work when Tamar gave birth to twins from the ancestral relationship she had with Judah. Verse 3 talks about these twins. The twins' names, as I said earlier, were Perez and Zerah. Zerah was the firstborn son. He stuck his hand out first and Judah tied a scarlet thread on his wrist because the name Zerah means scarlet. But then Zerah drew his hand back in and his brother Perez was born. Tamar named him Perez because it means breaking out. He broke out against his brother Zerah. But Perez is the one listed as the ancestor of Jesus, even though he was not the firstborn son. God was at work when Joshua picked out a couple of Israelites and sent them into the town of Jericho to spy out the land, or the city rather, before the army of Israel came in and took over the city of Jericho. He sent two spies in. One of their names was Salmon, who's listed in verse 4. In Jericho, these spies entered into a home, a home belonging to a former prostitute by the name of Rahab, When Salmon saw Rahab, it was love at first sight. They eventually got married and had a son named Boaz, who is mentioned in verse 5. God was at work one day when Boaz, after he had grown up to be a wealthy land-owning farmer, was out in his barley field. He happened to look up and see a, <coughs> a, pardon me, a hot young single woman walking around picking up some of the leftover grain He married her, and her name was Ruth, and he became the great-grandfather of David. And yes, God was even at work when David fell in love with Bathsheba, a sinful union. He committed adultery with her, and they had a son named Solomon, who is also listed in the genealogy. The sovereignty of God screams out of this passage. And look, nobody is for a moment going to argue that this passage is an excuse for you to sin. The sovereignty of God does not excuse you to go out and sin and say, well, God is sovereign, I'm not responsible, he's going to work it all out. See, it doesn't work that way, nor is this genealogy uh, a proof that you will not sometimes suffer grave consequences when you do make sinful choices. You often will. And so will I. But it ought to comfort us. See, this is the purpose of, of this passage. It ought to comfort us when we look back in our past and we say, if only things had been different. If only I had not done that. If only... And we live in regret. Because through this list of imperfect people, verse 1 says it's still the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. See what Matthew is doing? He is tracing the rainbow through the rain. He's tracing the rainbow of God's covenant promise through the reign of man's sin. He is connecting God's covenant with Abraham to God's covenant with David to Jesus Christ, the Son of God. He is the anointed Messiah. He is the one who would bring God's blessings to the nations. And not one of these flawed people in Matthew 1 would frustrate that plan. Why? Because God is sovereign. He knew all along what he was doing. And even through these painful experiences, God wrote a wonderful story, a story of redemption. 
And it works that way in your life too, see. Some of you this morning are looking back, maybe even recently to things you've done, maybe a long time ago to things that you did or were done to you. And you wonder how in the world will God ever, ever make a beautiful story out of this? Matthew 1 says he will. He will. You don't have to live with regret. Because God is bigger than those failures. William Cooper knows that. William Cooper was a man who lived in the 1700s. He was a hymn writer and a poet over in England. He was a very good friend of John Newton. Together, William Cooper and John Newton wrote and published a set of hymns called the Olney, O-L-N-E-Y, hymns. But if you look at the Olney hymns, you'll notice John Newton had a bunch more than William Cooper. The reason being is that William Cooper suffered all the time with depression. He tried to commit suicide three different times. He was offered a position in the House of Commons, or uh, the House of Lords, rather, but he broke under the pressure of the approaching examination. He thought he was condemned to hell, but he wasn't because he was a child of God who simply struggled. He struggled with regret. But through the reign of his regret, he saw the rainbow of God's love and grace. And he wrote a hymn out of that called God Moves in a Mysterious Way. In that hymn, he says this, Deep in unfathomable minds of never-failing skill, he treasures up his bright designs and works his sovereign will. Ye fearful saints, fresh courage take. The clouds you so much dread are big with mercy and shall break in blessings on your head. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense. But trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. See, when you look at Matthew 1, you see a lot of frowning providences. But we know the rest of the story. The smiling face of God's sovereign purpose to bring about the child Jesus, the son of Mary. Perfection then is unattainable. God is sovereign. The last and third thing that we want to see is that grace is amazing. Grace is amazing. Look with me at verse 11 and you're going to see a little bit of the grace of this this, uh, genealogy. It says in verse 11 that Josiah was the father of Jeconiah. I told you earlier I would say more about Jeconiah. He had another name. His other name was Jehoiachin. So remember that Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the exile to Babylon. Now, this verse and the next couple of verses belong to the darkest days in the history of Old Testament Israel. It alludes to 586 B.C., which I referred to earlier, when Jerusalem was besieged by Babylonian armies for months on end. The siege was so severe that it created a famine in Judah. The people of God were actually committing cannibalism. I'll just leave it at that. It was a horrible, horrible time for the people of God. And Jeconiah is mentioned here as being the king during part of those days. His other name being Jehoiachin, you can read more about him in parts of the Old Testament. You find out that he only reigned for three months. 
He was deported to Babylon and imprisoned, and then he was cursed by God because of his sin. It says in Jeremiah 22, 30, record this man as if childless, a man who will not prosper in his lifetime, for none of his offspring will prosper. None will sit on the throne of David or rule anymore in Judah. That's a sorry, sorry prophecy about this man, Jeconiah. Well, after he was deported, his uncle Zedekiah became the king of Judah. He was the last king of Judah. And his eyes were gouged out by the Babylonians. And he too was led away to Babylon, bound and shackled. And out of this context of grief and sadness and loss was written one of the Psalms. Psalm 137. Some of you know this Psalm. It says, uh, It says, by the rivers of Babylon, we sat and wept when we remembered Zion. What a sad time. What a tragic time. No wonder the people of God said, oh, come, oh, come, Emmanuel. And into that gloom stepped the grace of God. God said to Jeconiah and his contemporaries words that many of you have memorized. He said, for I know the plans that I have for you. Plans not to harm you, but to give you hope and a future. A glimmer of rainbow through the rain of Jeconiah's sins and misery. If you read the last chapter of Jeremiah, you find out what happened. Look at this. It's up here on the screen. screen. In Jeremiah 52, it says that in the 37th year of the exile of Jehoiachin, that's Jeconiah, the king of Judah, In the year evil Merodach became king of Babylon, he released Jehoiachin, king of Judah, and freed him from prison. He spoke kindly to him and gave him a seat of honor higher than those of other kings who were with him in Babylon. So Jehoiachin put aside his prison clothes and for the rest of his life ate regularly at the king's table. Here's a picture of God restoring that which was broken and fallen. He ate regularly at the king's table. Does that remind you of anybody else in the Old Testament? Maybe it does. A little Bible trivia. There was a fellow by the name of Mephibosheth, who was one of Saul's sons, who when King David became king, invited him to eat with him every day at a place of honor at the king's table. Those are images, my friends, of what God has done for you in Christ. You who once were an orphan, you who once were an enemy of God, God has invited near through the blood of Jesus, having taken care of your sin. And if you've trusted in Jesus, he has said, you're in a place of honor, just like Jehoiachin, Jeconiah, a man who once was cursed, but now has been released and loved and forgiven. Later on, you know the rest of the story. God raised up a pagan king out of Persia named Cyrus who brought Judah out of her exile in Babylon and restored the nation to her homeland. And of course, you also know that some 500 years later, an angel by the name of Gabriel showed up one day unannounced and unexpected at the home of a teenage girl named Mary and said to her, don't be afraid. For you're going to have a son, you're going to give birth to this son and call him Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. 
Isn't it a wonderful proof of the amazing grace of God that out of this disaster would come the Savior of the world? See, the miracle of the incarnation is that Jesus didn't just fly in, pin himself to a cross, and fly back out again. He became one of us. He got to know your sorrows. He experienced your griefs. He was tempted in every way, just like you and I are, though without sin. And that's why one of his names is Emmanuel. God with us. So what have we learned today from this list of names? We've learned that sin and failure are a reality. It's true, your past is riddled with a patchwork of mistakes and broken promises and bad choices, and it does no good to deny it. As one of my friends once said, cheer up, you're a whole lot worse than you thought you were. That's where you begin understanding the good news of the gospel. But as somebody else has said, secondly, your Redeemer is bigger than your past. God is bigger than your failures. He redeems and uses even your great mistakes to accomplish his grander purposes. And the third thing we've learned is that when you're at your worst, God's grace is at its best. There are no lost causes in the redemptive plan of God. There are no hopeless sinners in God's family. And may I pause and park on that thought right there for a moment longer? There are no hopeless sinners in God's family. I wonder if you know someone whom you've written off, someone you've thought there's no way, there's no hope for him, I will not have that person in my life because he has rejected any hope there might be. This passage of Scripture says, no, God welcomes the broken. He he welcomes the people that you have shunned. So you and I better start welcoming every single person that we meet. So what is the final bottom line lesson of the whole passage? Trust Christ and move forward with hope. Trust Christ and move forward with hope. Hope is the antidote to regret. Hope is the conviction that even though you've sinned, even though you failed, God came to you in Jesus. Jesus died on the cross and he rose again. His blood has covered your past and he's promised you a glorious future. You know, one of the privileges I have as a pastor is to be sort of a father confessor to a lot of people. People come into my office and they feel like they need to say what they've done wrong. And I've never heard one thing yet that the blood of Jesus does not and cannot cover. Jesus loves to welcome sinful people into his family. Martin Lloyd-Jones put it this way. He said, why believe the devil instead of believing God? Rise up and realize the truth about yourself, that all the past has gone and you are one with Christ and all your sins have been blotted out once and forever. Oh, let us remember that it is sin to doubt God's word. It is sin to allow the past which God has dealt with to rob us of our joy and our usefulness in the present and in the future. So this passage gives us great hope to continually trust in Christ. Now there is one last thing I'm going to say and that is that there's one regret that I hope nobody in this room will ever say on your deathbed and that being I wish 
I had opened my heart to Jesus Christ when I had the opportunity. I don't know to whom I'm speaking this morning, but if you've never stopped being your own Lord and Savior and asked Jesus to come in and take your life and let it be His life, then an opportunity exists today for you to do just that. Go back home today. Talk to God about your sin. Confess it. Admit it. And believe that Jesus Christ died to pay for it. Follow after Him. Commit your life to Him. And He'll give you a brand new life. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for this gospel that is embedded in this genealogy. This genealogy that's a record of wrongs and sins and mistakes and failures and people taking the wrong path. We thank You for it because that's who we are. And we thank You, Jesus, that You came to understand our sin and to become one of us so that you can make a full atonement for our sins. Father, today we pray that everyone here will know the great assurance of sins forgiven. And if there's someone who does not know that, may it be found today. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.